welcome back to another Ag Watchers with myself, Andrew Whitelaw, and Matt Dalgleish. This is the uh, the first one we've done in probably a fortnight, I think, and it's episode 21. And uh, we've got a, another guest in, uh, all the way from uh, a different time zone, a different era. Uh, what do we call it? The Empire Strikes Back. We've got uh, David Udall, who is uh, from AHDB. Hi, David. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Who are you? What Hi guys, um, thanks for thanks for having me on. That's that's always a difficult question when someone asks you what you do because most of the time it's just instructing other people to do work for me. Um, but we are um, AHDB are funded by um, farmers and the supply chain in in the UK, and we provide um, independent, impartial information um, across a whole range of subjects. Um, but my job, I'm in charge of the grain, oil, seed, and potato market intelligence and information that we put out and the, the economics that we put out for those. So we've got um, weekly and daily market reports going out for those commodities and we're trying to provide some independent, impartial information on what's happening on, on prices around the world to give farmers a bit of a, a bit of a helping hand in understanding what the next marketing decision is. So, so the idea, David, to get you on was to really have a bit of a chat. You know, we're in, coming up for November and we're not far away from, you know, EU Day or Independence Day or whatever they want to call it. Uh, with, with Brexit, was the 1st of January, it will be official, it'll be over, you'll be no longer part of the European continent. So we thought it was a good chance to talk about that, but I just wanted to highlight something there. You, you sort of mentioned that you're, that you cover potatoes and, uh, and grains, but you, you guys cover it like other commodities as well, like livestock uh, in yeah. the HDB. But you're a levy paying organization or you're funded by the levy payers, which is the, the farmers. So that's, that's quite interesting, actually, Matt, isn't it? Because yeah. we've, got, yeah. we've got a plethora of levy paying organizations, which each deal with their own specific thing from ginger growers, I think, pay a levy to agri-futures all the way through to you know, livestock and, and grain. So it's quite interesting. That, so it's, it's just one body for everything. Yeah, yeah. But so we were in that position um, where we had like separate bodies. Uh, so 12 years ago now, we came together as one organization. So previously you had um, cereals, uh, potatoes, um, beef and lamb, pork, dairy, and also horticulture as well. Um, and they were all separate levy boards, like you kind of just saying like Australian system is. Um, and they were merged together to try and save costs and obviously sort of share information because, you know, soil is the same around the country whether you're growing it for crops or you're growing it for grass for dairy or anything like that so you know there's a lot of like cross information that can be shared um and yeah it, it works well it works well like everything there's a bit of an issue but you know it's a better system it's um it's an interesting point though that and you raise it too that within australia we're kind of what you were doing uh, over a decade ago but um Within Australia, it's actually in some areas, it's even worse than that. We've got within the red meat space, they're actually talking about trying to just get some consolidation within the red meat space, let alone, let alone having, um, you know, cross, cross commodity type consolidation. Um, you know, we've got quite, quite a few. Because that's true. You've got sheep and wool and, and cattle and goats are all separate levies, aren't they? Mm. <clears throat> oh, well, but I think there's, there's a, obviously that's, that's an interesting thing to raise because that's something that is in the process of being reviewed and revised at present. Uh, I guess it's just another example of, you know, Britain being a little bit ahead of the game, Matt. Yeah. 
we think a lot of the time that we're actually kind of behind and that's the big thing that we get you know when we're talking about like uk farm productivity and things like that people use uh international examples and they go like well if you look at what's happening in australia you know they're producing x y and z and they're so much better and we go well yeah but you know unless we learn about that system we don't actually know what they're doing we can't say definitively we are better or worse than another country in in whatever crop or or commodity we're producing it's it's a bit of a strange one we all know that british farming is just 90 percent driving around in a range rover vogue and uh, and collecting your levy fees uh, your 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 cap reform payments which yep. which gets us on to i get it that's a good segue in cap payments what is well first of all actually tell us what a cap payment is in its ultra simplistic one-on-one nursery uh the, the most simplest way to put it is it's basically getting a payment to have land and use land so every year a farmer will be getting around uh 220 pounds so what's that probably 400 450 dollars per um hectare um to just grow a crop and it's just a a subsidy payment for being a farmer and growing a crop so it does breed inefficiency is this something then uh it's not to do with anything around biodiversity or carbon credits or anything like that this is this is purely just to to help the rural industries there in the uk Yep. Yep. There's, there's, um, it's just called a a direct payment support, um, to, you know, try and, um, you know, keep food production within the EU and not being outsourced. Um, but the new system that's coming in, so that's now being phased out as part of leaving the EU from a UK perspective. Um, so those direct payments are getting phased out over the next, um, five to six years uh, and they're going to replace that with a new environmental land management scheme which is all going to be about um carbon credits and environments and um, having a more sort of socially responsible thing but the big question that no one has ever been able to answer is um the key theme of that is public money for public goods and what is a public good in agriculture is it the food you're producing or is it the pretty landscape of a hillside in the north of england with a few sheep and a nice hedge and lots of birds fluttering around and that's the thing that we haven't quite got to the bottom of yet and so what happens now you know brexit on the first of january those those cap payments do they continue or what happens yeah so they'll continue um so the government has um, agreed that you know when we leave um, although we've already officially left, but when we um, start a new trading arra- arrangement on the 1st of January, that those direct payments will continue, but they're going to be phased out. Um, and, you know, it's one of those tricky ones. I think it was an area where, you know, Brexit was sold as this land of hope and glory and it was all going to change, but actually it's a pretty significant reduction in income. I mean, if you look at um, like cereal farmers are probably one of the worst hit. You know, we're talking of like a 20 to 25% reduction in income per year. If we take the subsidy payments out, it's basically profit and, you know, a significant amount of loss that they then make if they lose these um, direct payments. So, um, you know, it comes back to what we were talking about at the start in terms of the work that I'm doing and my team are doing, trying to provide information to farmers so they make more you know, informed marketing decisions to try and make a profit from their marketing rather than rely singularly on getting a check at the end of the year to tide them over so is that is, has that impacted upon land values because obviously if, if you've got a guaranteed 250 pounds per per hectare um is it per hectare or per acre hectare 
Hector. So that obviously gives you a sort of a baseline for that land value. So if you suddenly lose that, then, because we know that land values have been increasing massively in the UK, yep. like way ahead of sort of residential real estate prices, apart from London, uh, which we've sort of seen in Australia to an extent recently as well. So what is the, is that, is that, are we seeing an impact on, on land values? Um, I, I think there's, there's, there's a significant risk that the land values do start to drop. And I think we'll see that over the next three or four years when the payments really starts to get taken out of the system, but they've sort of started to stagnate over the last couple of years. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty over investments in the industry. Um, and we've obviously got a lot of cheap interest rates at the moment. So people have, you know, being offered cheap money, but don't necessarily want to dive in and go and invest heavily in expanding acreage or expanding um, operations when there's such a significant risk on the horizon. It's almost sort of stagnated the investment in agriculture to a degree. You mentioned too um, that the payments are kind of was an EU based kind of initiative, I guess. So that I presume that then all, all the other EU countries are still participating in a system like this for their rural areas and that's going to continue is that going to mean that if you can't get your system in the uk sorted appropriately that there's going to be a kind of a competitive disadvantage or something for the uk farmer or how, how will that play out um yeah definitely uh so the the cap system will continue um and they're discussing and have been discussing over the last couple of years a new system to be implemented um they're always trying to improve it to make it more efficient but ultimately it is a huge proportion of the EU budget that gets paid in, in agriculture. And when you've got um, like the French farm lobby is huge and, you know, that's massively influential and that kind of carries on for the rest of the EU. Um, so yeah, it, it is a, a competitive disadvantage that we'll be, we'll be losing. Um, and then when you add on to that, you know, um, some specific sectors that are going to get um, hit with tariffs um, in some areas, it'll improve. So for like the, the pork industry, you know, we're generally a net importer. So if we um, put some tariffs on, that's going to increase the domestic farm price, which isn't really going to be, be a bad thing. Um, but for other sectors where we're net exporters, like lamb especially, that's where we're really going to get hurt. And to a degree, cereals, depending on the, on the balance we've got on the year. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of going to be a bit of a double whammy that there's going to be a lot of... Um, the direct payments taken away, which you, you lose the competitive edge, and then you've got to pay the tariffs on top of that as well. Um, so so, so let's, let's talk a bit about tariffs then, because that's one of the, uh, the favoured topics in Australia at present, uh, between us and our brothers and sisters in China. In terms of, like, in, in we, at the moment, we've got an 80, let's call it 80, 81% tariff into China for barley you're going to get a tariff into Europe of what, 60 euros or something like that? Uh, no, it's worse than that. So barley would go at about 90, 95, 96 euros. It works out about 79 pounds per tonne. Um, okay. So considering barley is trading domestically at 120, 130 pounds a tonne off the farm, I mean, you're talking about a 50% tariff for, for argument's sake. So you've had a big, a big barley year this year. Where's all that going to go then? And uh, sorry, so actually, is it is it certain there's going to be a tariff on the first of January, or is it still in negotiations? Well, so that's the point. I mean, that's that's the key crux of it, really. That um, the negotiations are ongoing. Um, the reason that they're struggling for negotiations, it isn't necessarily some of the kind of um, like the bigger picture stuff. It's some stuff that's um, 
not necessarily small, but some of the more sort of like niche aspects when you're looking at fisheries, that's one of the big things that's the real struggle. And that's putting a real blocker on it. And the fisheries industry, you know, especially for Scotland is huge. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the, the key aspect that's slowing things down. So those negotiations are still ongoing. We wanted to get a deal, um, well, by today was when it was supposed to happen, but I don't really think that's going to um, come good. Um, so if we if we don't end up with a uh, with a free trade agreement with the EU, we end up falling back to um, World Trade Organization terms, and that's when the tariffs kick in. So that's the that's the risk. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a game of brinkmanship at the moment that we're only we're two and a half months away, and we started this process in uh, June two thousand and sixteen when we voted to leave, okay. and we still haven't been able to get to a point of an agreement on a tariff schedule, so uh, or a trade agreement rather. And in terms of in terms of that barley, so what 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 is what is the surplus or exportable surplus of barley this year from the UK? So this year, because we had such a, a rubbish um, planting season in autumn of two thousand nineteen, it rained pretty much solidly for five months. Now I know everyone thinks it rains all the time in England anyway, but you know this was like consistent rain. Um, the kind of rain that you get in Scotland that you guys can deal with, but the kind of rain when it happens in England, it's kind of like biblical end of the world kind of stuff. But just a um, Tuesday. Just a Tuesday, <laughs> yeah. One light shower. Um, and it basically meant we the, the wheat area dropped by about 35% uh, that we planted in the autumn. Um, and so that moved a huge amount of land into spring barley. Um, so it put it basically doubled the area of spring barley. Um, so we've got a, a crop this year of just over 8 uh, million tonnes and we're probably going to end up with an exportable surplus, um, probably around one point between 1.7 and 2 million tonnes. Um, it also then depends on coronavirus impact because, you know, we've seen more restrictions come in over the last few days of pubs that have got to close in certain parts of England and um, Scotland, especially um, last week. Um, so if that reduces the malting barley demand and that's just more feed barley that we've got to export to push us over a 2 million tonne export um, surplus. So, yeah, it's 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 a good chunk of exports that we've got to move um so that that volume then is going to end up really there's, there's a there's a good chance like we we can't export to china it's just not not competitive yep. you guys can't export to europe because competitively it doesn't work so that effectively means that in all likelihood we're going to be attempting to get our barley into saudi yeah and, and you guys are probably going to be looking into saudi as well and Algeria and the North African sort of states, which puts us back in 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 competition, really, in terms of export flows. Yeah, definitely. Especially when when you think of Saudi, that they've been trying to um, they've been reducing their um, barley, haven't they? Because compound feed in Saudi is now cheaper than feeding direct grain, isn't it? From the um, well, they, that new feed that they've created. But they've been subsidising that as well, haven't they? To yeah. to discourage straight feeding. But I guess I guess barley in australia or you can call me a traitor but you know as a newfound australian the barley in australia has got better moisture contents than than, than the uk yeah, yeah, of, yeah so it's competitive more attractive for for saudi arabia and whatnot but you don't often you don't often hear andrew saying that something in australia is better than something in the uk so you could just re- <laughs> could you just repeat that one again for us andrew uh, uh, sorry sorry i'm saying it's better than england <laughs> right, okay. So Scottish barley, it's a different story. Oh, we, we've got we've got plenty of demand. Yeah. <laughs> before before you before you move on though, Andrew, one of the points you mentioned there with how um 
I guess, you know, potentially for one of the first, first times in a while in the barley space, we'll be in competition with the UK. I just wondered, David, what is the perception generally on the ground there in the UK that, you know, Australia is now being seen as an opportunity with, with you guys going out of the uh, EU? Is, is Australia kind of back in favour or is Australia being seen as a potential threat still? Um, you know, what's the kind of general feeling amongst the agricultural space there about, you know, potentially closer relationships again, uh, you know, with, with one of the old colonies? Um, I think like where we are with Australia in terms of like the trade negotiations, I think we're at a pretty early and, and stage. D- David, don't say anything about prisons because that really offends them. <laughs> hey, I wasn't, I wasn't going to go there at all, but if you want to start that. <laughs> um, or, or any jokes about leaving yogurt in the sun. Um, no, we can swiftly move on from that. Then I don't want to. I don't want to create a. You know, get in the middle of an international incident trying to negotiate a trade agreement. Um, but yeah, it's still early days. Um, to be honest, I think um, our government was a little bit surprised that um, there was a, a list of sensitive products that came across from Australia. I don't think we've seen exactly what that is um, at the moment, but I think it was quite long. So I think Australian, you know, government's being pretty aggressive with its position which you would be in a trade deal you've got to stand pretty strong to start with um i think from from an agriculture point of view uh, i think people are probably more concerned over um you know the potential meat trade um and if there's any possibilities there um but it's probably a bit of a long way off i think domestically most people are more focused on the us that's been the biggest area where people have been concerned in terms of food standards Um, chicken chlorinated chicken it's the classic even though um you know that's probably very unlikely to happen um it's just the one that's grabbed the headlines uh so yeah it's 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 a bit crazy really um i don't think anyone's really fully understood what international trade is and what it means because we've been so insulated with the eu for 35 40 years now that people have kind of forgotten what international trade is and how it works and you've kind of got a you know comparative advantage and basic economics rule um and we kind of haven't really got to that point where we figured out what the the pros and cons are because um, because we but, have a lot we have a lot of lamb or kiwi lamb goes into the uk that's the yeah that's the sort of common one you see on the asda and tesco shelf um, well, i guess that's the interesting thing is so like what are the chances of getting you know more preferential quarters and stuff into the uk for 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 australian lamb so i think i do think it's there and i think that's probably a risk especially because i mean the lamb sector is the one as i said earlier that's going to get hit the most even though um we've got a relatively balanced domestic supply and demand because we we do already have some free tariff quotas with um australia new zealand for lamb it kind of means that we are a net exporter because we've already got a significant volume coming in um and we're going you know a lot of that exports going into the eu so you know, worst case scenario for lamb is that we see a, um, you know, we don't agree a trade deal with um, with the EU. We get to 1st of January and we have this, um, you know, massive sort of 50, 60% tariff that's being applied. And then you see huge levels of slaughterings domestically um, in the UK because a large proportion of the, um, of the, uh, of the lamb um, crop just won't be viable in, a, in an economic sense and, and it does open up the market to then more more imports um, and also you know from a UK perspective we've been seeing historically you know lamb consumption is falling and has been falling for a long time it's still perceived as a as an older product you know um, it's difficult for younger people to, to to get involved in lamb so it's I think it will be an opportunity um, 
for the also, people it's also through. seen as like i know like anecdotally from my family it was always seen as a bit of a treat lamb yeah because it was expensive you know and, and, com- com- compared to beef and and my mother cooked it terribly so that probably put me off until i came to australia it still is expensive in the uk as well like relatively to to, to other meats i mean you know, we've seen like everywhere in the world, chicken, um, like white meat consumption rise massively over the last 10 years. You know, the poultry market has been going through the roof um, because that's the area where people have been going. It's all those knockoff KFC stores that have been popping up on the on the high street um, that's been driving it. So, yeah, so I guess in, in, in sort of summary, like Brexit, it's the deadline is today and that's most likely going to be passed and probably the, the government's probably concentrating on on the second or or third wave of covid yeah so we, we've really got what two and a half months for you guys to to make a decision or or get a, an agreement in place you're going to be competing with us on bali potentially into into north america and not north africa and, and middle east uh you're also potentially uh you know, a market for, for improved imports of, of lamb into, into UK. So it's, look, it's, it's interesting because it, it really is sort of, you know, what we said before is that trade flow is just ebb and flow. That's why it's probably called the trade flow. And like, if there's a barrier put in place, you know, trade just moves to a different location, which is what we're seeing in, in, in China with barley. There's a lot more barley going from France to China now. No, it's just yeah. just just a far, part of 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 economics, really, isn't it? And and trade flow management. Yeah, so, and you know, on the barley front, you know, we we don't have an agreement with well, we've got an agreement in principle with China for barley, um, but there's still some um, uh, pest and uh, sort of uh, um, admix issues that we need to work out with them before we can export in volume. So it's not even if you know they place a tariff on Australian barley and UK can just go and fill that gap. You know, we're all restricted in where we can go. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it, it seems over the last couple of years the world has got more restricted in its international trade, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. More restrictive policies seem to be coming in place. Um, so it'll be a difficult trading scenario. Well, I think, like, I think in the next couple of years, Matt, you might have a comment on it as well. But with the uh, with 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 economies potentially tanking around the world, then protectionism sort of comes to the fore. It's a bit like the 1920s again. Yeah, it becomes, it's a, I mean, we've seen it with the whole rise of that Trump style of politics that it's, um, you know, and, and, and with his success in, in what he's um, done there in terms of capturing that American presidency, um, I think that kind of emboldened quite a few around different countries, that style of, you know, protectionist um, rhetoric, whatever you want to call it, um, doesn't really have much of a grounding in, in economic uh, theory or, or real, you know, kind of solid analysis. And, you know, certainly uh, from that perspective, the, you know, the support behind free trade is probably, you know, a bigger thing, but um, it, it just has a cut through with a certain population, doesn't it? That kind uh, of thing. That's, um, that's what I was going to say, Matt. I'm not sure how many of Trump's voters have a solid understanding of economic <laughs> theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. So, so, yeah, so I guess I'll leave you with a question before we go, David. What's your, what's your big prediction for the next year we can we can come back and test it next september is brexit going to be a good or bad thing for british farmers um immediately 
uh, over the next year, I think it will probably weigh up. There'll be more negatives than positives if we don't get a trade deal. That's the thing. If we don't get a trade deal with the EU, there's more risk there. Um, in the longer term, though, personally, I'm a great advocate of free market economics and subsidies breeding inefficiency. So I think, you know, over 10 years, it will improve efficiency and improve productivity. Um, but uh, yeah, short term, probably more harm than good. Yeah, and I think it's going to be a, it's going to be a really interesting test, I guess, in terms of how if if it's a success for the UK, then I guess there's a lot of other nations within Europe that are a bit testy when it comes to their relationship with with Europe, and, oh, and I, that... I just wonder whether that sort of promotes more secession throughout the eurozone. Who knows? Yeah, I was just going to have a follow-up question for you, David, too, when you said that about the, the chances of getting a, um, an agreement in place. I guess, what's the, what's the confidence level, on, given, given the history of the Brexit kind of scenario and the backwards and forwards in and out of Brussels that um, subsequent prime ministers had to make um, without any resolution? What's the success, do you think, of actually getting something in place before the deadline? I think there's been more more positive signs in the in the last couple of weeks than what there has been for a while. So I think I think we've got to that point where everyone realizes that actually having a deal is the right thing to do. Um, it's just, and I think a lot of it has been agreed. So it is only those sort of final parts. So it kind of feels that we're probably pushing to the point where um, you know we we could get a deal. But if it needs to be done, it needs to be done now. And if we end up in a couple of weeks or three weeks and, and there's still nothing has happened, then I think it could all you know in that sort of political world it will all just fall apart and it'll be basically then just who's the first one to blame the other before it all goes mm. to pot so yeah if we don't have a deal you know especially like in a month's time by 15th of november then yeah i, I can't see it happening no worries mm. well thanks for thanks for taking the time david in or in your early morning to have a chat with us like it's uh we'll, we'll get you on in january and we'll find out whether people have been jumping out the windows or whatnot uh but yeah, like, thanks for taking the time. And uh, that, was, that was really informative. No, cheers, guys. It's a pleasure. Happy to. Excellent. No thanks for that. And Andrew, this is the, um, the first of our um, podcast we, from since you changed to the music. Are we going back to the original music at the start and end now? Or are we, well, are we... well, well, talking about, you know, Trumpish politicking. So, so David, you might not be aware, but we had, uh, <laughs> when we started this podcast, Matt chose the intro music and the outro music. And the, and it and it just gets uh, a lot of flack, <laughs> and and so and so we changed it for the last one, and then which, which was even less popular. Well, it was less popular because you set up a Twitter poll and then rigged it. Um, it was it was it was about as genuine a poll as a bloody Zimbabwean election. <laughs> <laughs> so, but. But I'm a believer in democracy, regardless of how it's done. So we'll, we'll go back to the original one. Excellent. Titled hokey.mp3. <laughs> <laughs> Hillbilly music. But it's, it's, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow on people, like I said. Like it's just a brand, it. isn't it? You just need to make sure people know, know, your, know your brand and that it's you guys and then it'll be all right. Then hear that, hear that music and then yeah. to avoid you. Well, actually, we'll, <laughs> I'll actually, I'll get it set up on our phones as a ringtone, Matt. Mm, that'd be good. 
But from David's comment just there about our brand, I think he's in support of the music even without hearing it by the sound of things. So. <laughs> that's not what I said. That's not what I said. That's, 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 another, level, that's another level of um, Trump politics, isn't it? You're just saying what you did. <laughs> that's, what, uh, that's what I heard, David. That's, that's, yeah. I'm sticking with that. <laughs> right. Oh, thanks very much. And we'll see you guys later. Okay. Cool. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers, Mark. guys. Take care.